Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Ralph Shami, who is Assistant Director, Institute for Capacity Development at the International Monetary Fund. He is in charge of capacity development for the Western Hemisphere region. Before joining the IMF, he was on the Faculty of Finance at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me. I want to start with your recent article entitled, Lifelines in Danger in the Finance and Development Journal of the International Monetary Fund, in which you say the COVID-19 pandemic is crippling the economies of rich and poor countries alike. Yet for many low-income and fragile states, the economic shock will be magnified by the loss of remittances, money sent home by migrant and guest workers employed in foreign, co- foreign countries. Could you talk a bit about that article? Sure. And um, just to give you a background, I have been working on remittances for over 22 years. Um, and my interest in it uh, started uh, as a personal uh, quest, but uh, being at the IMF and a premier macro institution, the interest of the IMF is sort of what are the macro implications of, of whatever you observe as a micro phenomena. And remittances is a microphenomena. These are transfers that are sent from migrant workers back to their home, to their families back home. So it's very much a person-to-person transfer. We call it private non-market transfer, if you like. Yeah. Um, so cutting to the chase, uh, in, in general, remittances have always been viewed as stable hmm. and a lifeline of the poor. Because in many of the countries that rely on remittances, there is no social insurance. Right. There, is, there are people that work by you know what we call peace rate. They don't have contracts. They don't have labor contracts. You know, they're living hand to mouth. If you don't work, you starve. Um, and so what remittances have done, because they're stable, they've been shown to be stable, people have come to rely on them. Mm-hmm. And they, mostly they're used for consumption. 
right. uh, consumption of you know uh, whatever it is services in the country as well as to import stuff from outside and governments have come to rely on them because they've realized that many of their citizens rely on these remittances and therefore when they get these remittances they increase their consumption and their spending and so governments figure out very quickly rather than tax remittances directly which mm-hmm. which actually would be counterproductive and immoral uh they tax them indirectly by putting taxes on sales tax or value added tax so governments have come to re- rely on remittances as a source of revenue tax revenue for them right and i've studied them for all these years and i found them like many others that have done this to be stable yeah Quite and it's not a it's not a small yeah. amount right it's oh, like no, 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 no. Uh, 500 no, no, no. billion or something yeah, yeah 550 billion by world bank uh, yeah some it's but the real numbers are magnitudes of that because many of these remittances are unreported they are in kind carried on in many countries where you have foreign exchange restriction people carry them on their on themselves or hide them in theirs or they do hawala system I, you know i give it to you here you give it to your you your cousin in the country uh called uh, if for example you know i want to send money to my mother and she lives in a country where there are foreign exchange restrictions that and i live in the us you knock on my door I, I, you tell me how much you want to give your mom and i say 1000 bucks you say give me the 1000 you pick up the phone you call your cousin in the country and your cousin drops by my mother's house and gives her 1000 so the estimates the real estimates of remittances are magnitudes of the officially reported numbers of about 550 billion as of 2019 mm-hmm. um but when the way they accumulate they they trickle because you know migrant workers don't send billions they send hundreds of dollars hundreds <laughs> right. a year 200 but when you add them up they 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 adapt and in fact for many fragile and low income countries they are the most important source of flows into their countries yeah they dwarf they dwarf capital flows portfolio flows even for uh, foreign, um, even uh, official aid yeah i was looking at the uh, some of the numbers so for the low income countries uh, yes. you know where uh, you have 350 billion in remittances going if you yes. take those countries their foreign direct investment is is only 150 billion their aid is only 100 billion so remittances is actually the line share of that total money flow right equity portfolio investments is very low yeah because think about it who's going to go invest in a fragile state yeah who's going to invest in a country that is facing crises see the beauty of remittances is we we call them counter cyclical mm-hmm. when we started the statistical nature we discovered that they're different than capital flows when 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 we talk about capital flows we think of money that comes in to make money yeah. so i invest in a country well i'm not going to invest in a country that's going down the drain mm-hmm. you see whereas remittances if you have family in that country and that fa- and your family is suffering you're likely to send more money so as the economy in the home country is suffering the 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 migrant worker sends even more money so there it's as so think about it this way as a country is facing a crisis yeah capital flows out but remittances flow in right that's what we call it the lifeline hmm. it's the lifeline of many people many a person and and they've come to they use it for consumption to send their kids to school to private school so even purchase private uh, you know uh, access to private ma- medical uh, uh, medical attention yeah 
And 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 as and as I said, and governments have figured this one out. So they've we've tried to encourage them because it's a cheap source of funding for them too. Right. Because why they're a cheap source of funding? Because this is not money coming in to make money. That would be capital flows or portfolio flows. Mm-hmm. This is money coming in to help person to person. It's not government to government, so it's not political. So it's apolitical. It's not profit driven. And for for many governments in the recipient countries, it's a boon. It's a fantastic way of getting you know cheap funding for for actually their spending. So many in many countries that rely on remittances, you find that governments actually throw caution to the wind because they know this is a stable source of funding, and so they've used it actually not necessarily to look after their people, but to to engage in other kinds of white elephant um, yeah. uh, projects. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, so sure. in the in the COVID nineteen context, uh-huh. um, a drop in remittance flows, uh, it's going to create a whole sort of problems, right? Economic, fiscal, and social pressures uh, in these countries. And I think World Bank estimates uh, sort of a twenty percent drop uh, because of the COVID nineteen in twenty twenty. Correct. My my colleague Dilip Pratha runs that shop, and and uh, yes, Dilip estimates twenty percent. I believe worldwide in twenty two percent or even more in Africa and so forth. Indeed. So what's different about this one? Because I studied. I've been as as I've told you. I I studied the two thousand eight crisis, and I was interested at the time. Yeah. Uh, part of my work was to look at the impact of remittances in two thousand eight. So what happened in two thousand eight is yes, there was a drop in remittances, but not to this extent. Why? Because because Asia at the time was was spared the agony that we went through in in the U.S. and in Europe, where right. the epicenter of the financial crisis took place. Also, Africa, because migration mostly in Africa is within Africa, south to north. Africa was spared the impact on its remittances. Yeah. So yes, there was an effect, but not as much. What's different about this one, and this is the chart that you see, which is when I saw it, Dilip sent it to me. It was incredible because for the first time ever, you see a dip in everything, mm. capital flows, portfolio flows, and remittances at the same time. Which And even official aid, we didn't extend it, and he probably doesn't yet have the data for that. I bet you that official aid would actually even drop because many of the donor countries are themselves suffering. Yeah. So this is what I call the perfect storm. So here's so here's a lifeline that has always been relied on by low income, low and middle income actually, and fragile states. And suddenly it becomes a, an additional channel of of crisis transmission. You mm-hmm. see, you already have the trade channel suffering. You already have the tourism channel suffering. You 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 already have all kinds of channels suffering due to COVID. No one ever thought that remittances would be another channel through which the crisis would transmit. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is all the people that have been relying on remittances during yeah. times are not going to see that much money coming in. All the governments of those countries that have relied on remittances as a cheap source of funding are not going to get what they thought they're going to get. Right. So what I was interested in that in that study is what would be the macro, because I live in a macro institution, Yep. What are the macro implications? And they are quite significant. So I was at the time when I wrote the article, I was using my past work to kind of opine on what I think would be the impacts of these remittances. Briefly speaking, it is more likely to push those countries into worse situations. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you have a list of countries here, uh, which sort of a pain index, uh, you know, could be correlated with uh, remittances uh, over GDP as, as a ratio. Yes. And these countries, some of them, uh, Tajikistan, Bermuda, Tonga, Nepal, yeah. uh, Haiti, uh, Moldova, El Salvador, Samoa. Some of these countries are fairly small um, yeah. in terms of population, but they are heavily, heavily reliant on remittances, uh, you know, the remittances over, uh, over GDP. Total GDP of the country is in the range of 10 to 30 percent, right, for these countries? Yes, in fact, the list, I just chose the 10 because of the limitations within the article, you know, how many words. Yeah. But typically, remittances matter to an economy whenever they are above 4% of GDP, empirically. Yeah. But I could not put the whole list of countries. You'd get about over 80 countries. Right. I mean, take India, for example. India, India is, and China are, are, one, are the two of the largest recipients of remittances yeah. in the world in terms of. Right. But when you divide it by GDP, because, you know, India has a huge GDP and China, so the remittance to GDP becomes less. Yeah. But even in India, it's quite sizable. And it still dwarfs, uh, I wish I, you know, had that uh, to show you, it's still more than the FDIs into India. You see? Yeah. Philippines, Philippines depends on remittances. Uh, Colombia, in the Middle East, I can name you, many countries that depend on remittances. You know, you, you name it, Jordan, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Morocco, Tunisia, uh, Mauritania, uh, you know, and, and the list goes on. That's in the Middle East. Yeah. In the Western Hemisphere, you've got Colombia, you've got Honduras, Nicaragua. All this is, depends on remittances. You go into Asia, oh my goodness. I mean, you start with the biggest one, which is India, and then the list goes on. So, if I were to extend the list to like 10% of GDP, then the list would grow quite significantly. Yeah. Which means, when we say, by the way, uh, like in Tajikistan, it's 34. By the way, this is a conservative estimate. These are my own calculations. Mm-hmm. Calculations for Tajikistan that says remittance to GDP are about 45%. Yeah. What does that mean? That means if you meet if, if a Tajik person walking down the street and he's got 100 bucks in his pocket, most likely... $45 out of that is from his relative abroad. That's what it means. Yeah, and- it's, uh, you talked about India, Ralph. You know, I was thinking, uh, I don't think this will show up in a country metric, but, yes. but there's a case study that might be interesting. So I grew up in South India. It's a place called Kerala. Of course. And uh, yeah. it is, uh, you know, it's about 35 million people. Uh, it is, you know, is a, a, a very uh, narrow uh, strip of land by the Arabian Sea. It's about 350 miles long, about 50 miles wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10% of the people uh, live outside the outside the state, yeah. and they don't really publish, you know, very very reliable numbers in terms of remittances. But uh, estimates are that 30% of the GDP of Kerala. Uh, is is coming from outside. Uh, its GDP is about 140 billion, and uh, if you look at all of India's remittances, uh, uh, more than 20 percent is coming to the small small state in the country. Exactly. And, and you know, it has uh, about small, small, relatively small, <laughs> relatively small. But but in terms of uh, you know in terms of number of people, it's My quite goodness. large. My goodness. And. Um, and, you know, this is a situation where 
they were very early in terms of curbing COVID-19. But what has happened since then is that there is a large influx of people, uh, expatriates coming back and back to the state. There you uh, go. And now the numbers are back up again. There you go. So, so that's why I was calling it the perfect storm. Yeah. So what's happened is because this is a global shock. So what happened is usually India has a, an incredible diaspora and they think of it as a diversified portfolio. And they're all over the world. So if, 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 you know, let's say the U.S. goes through a recession, Indians and other, you know, other parts of the, the world and other continents are still doing well, they send, they send money home. Yeah. They, but this is a global shock. Every, everybody has been hit. So there is no one that has been spared. As a result, you cannot play the diversification game. There is, as a result, the, the country, like in, uh, in, in, in your case, your homeland, is being hit because all the diaspora, no matter where they are, mm-hmm. the, you know, whether in, in the U.S. or Europe or Australia or what have you, they've all been hit. The economies are, are aching. Yeah. As a result, the migrant workers, by the way, migrant workers in all of these countries are the first to lose their job. Right. They, they don't have... They don't have the, the 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 protection that the citizen has, in general. Yeah. As a result, they when these economies, like in the U.S., we go into a tailspin. Migrant workers, the working in the fields and so forth, lose their jobs. And when they lose their jobs, they can't send money home. They can hardly, you know, they're living basically. It's called the peace rate. If you don't make money, you can't eat. So they're going to send money home. If they have any savings, they're going to be using it for themselves right. and their families. If they have their families here, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so as a result, they're unable to send money home. Now, add add what I, you know, the, in addition to this is what you're talking about, which is in many countries, when you lose your job, you lose your residency, right? And for a period, these people were not sent back home because of the people were not traveling because you know airplanes airlines were not working. But for example, in the Gulf states, yeah. When they've lost, they put them on a plane and send them home. Now, that is bad. But what's worse about it is that the living conditions of many of these migrant workers is is awful. Right. And we've known that. We've known that for a very long time. So they are housed in many of these countries. They're housed 30, 40 to, to a room. Mm-hmm. So the chances of, of, of infection among them is high. Right, right. So when you put them on a plane and you send them back, what are you really doing? They're arriving in a country that's already struggling to deal with the the COVID within the citizens, within its borders. Now the expats are coming back and they don't have the means to look after them. Yeah, so so you have in this article laid out, you know, three important um, actions that countries should think about. You say first host countries need to stabilize the employment opportunities of the migrant workers in their economies. Uh, Second, countries receiving returning migrants will will need help to contain, mitigate, and reduce the escalation of outbreaks. And you say, third, given that poor countries' governments have limited room for maneuver, these countries will need assistance of international financial institutions and the donor community. So so these three actions appear to be, they have to be all taken simultaneously, right? Yes, and, 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 and one point, if I may underscore the first 
the first uh, yeah uh, first one, which is what should the what I call the rich countries and the high income countries do. And here it's important to understand that I'm saying that these countries got to do it not because of the goodness of their heart, because it's in their best interest. Why it's in their best interest? Imagine in the U.S. if you were to send all the migrant workers home when you want to restart the economy. You, you need the, you need the, the the labor that knows what to do because you want to start you don't want to re-educate and retrain people all over again you need the migrant workers that you've invested in yeah. to, to be there ready to to uh, to restart re the economy that's one two if we were really to allow this to happen that we don't help them out and the remittances don't go home and worse at all send them home packing, I call it the boomerang effect. Yeah, the boom meaning they go back. What do you think is going to happen back home? This crisis is so uh, precipitous that you could lead. It could lead to social upheaval in those countries because many of these countries are fragile states. They're barely able on a daily basis to handle what's going on, let alone the COVID and the crisis and the return migrants. So what I was saying is that you could see social upheaval in those countries that spill beyond the borders, right. creating another refugee problem. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to the shores of the first, you know, sort of the rich countries and the high income countries. So I was saying to avoid all of this, it's in our best interest to stabilize the remitters or if you like the migrant workers in our borders. So within the U.S., as we are providing these checks to citizens. So I'm a citizen. I, you know, presume I get a check, and you, we should do extend that benefit yeah. to the migrant workers, stabilize them. One, it helps us to restart our economy, and we are trying to do so. And two, it avoids the costlier, you know, option of seeing them come back as as refugees now to a world. Europe and U.S. that is much less open, as you know very well. The narrative has changed. Right. And so let's avoid all of this. And I said, let's stabilize them. At the same time, people have to understand. I find it disheartening when I hear conversations about, you know, what should Africa do and what should the fragile states do? Hmm. Because we're extrapolating from our world into their world. What we, what people don't understand in many of fragile states, low-income states, middle, people are living hand to mouth. So when you tell them, you know, you should do lockdown, lockdown to somebody in Africa, meaning starve. Mm. Because if he's not out there working, he or she is not out there working. Right. There's money. It's not a contract. It's not like you and me. I, I work at the IMF. I have a contract. I have insurance so I can work from home. There's no, if I'm not out there selling, I'm starving. So it's, it's awful. Yeah. It's unjust to give people the choice. Either you go out and you run the risk of getting COVID, or you stay home and starve. It's between starvation and dying from the from COVID. Yeah, so so uh, like you say, this is a this is an international problem. And, exactly, and it has to be tackled as such, right? Exactly. And if I may, I may just, let me summarize it to you in a visual. Yeah. When 2008 happened, and I was working on the crisis uh, at the IMF, you know, the 2008 financial crisis. You, as I said before, U.S. and Europe were caught in it, Asia less so. So imagine yourself, you are you fall into a river and the current is a very strong current and is about to pull you under and there's somebody on the bank of the river and that, that person 
throws you a lifeline and you hold on to it and they pull you to safety. Mm -hmm. That's what happened in 2008 when Asia was able to pull the rest of us out and, and eventually the, the world recuperated. Yeah. This time around, there is no one on the bank of the river. We are all in the water, raging water, with yeah. a very strong current, and we are all held together by what I call a belt of humanity. Mm. Either all help each other out and get out, because no country can do this by itself, on its own, no one. Trust me, they cannot. All the prescription, economic prescriptions that we used to give before applies for idiosyncratic shocks. Right. This is a global shock. So we're all held together. Either we work together to get ourselves out or we're all going to suffer, go under together. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the tactical actions for the shock uh, are very clear. But I want to now relate to one of your earlier articles, um, which is more of a strategic uh, question before uh, we get into this, this, this shock uh, in terms of COVID-19. And you ask, is there a remittance trap? Uh, and you say, many studies confirm that remittances are essential in the battle against poverty, lifting millions of families out of bare subsistence. But at the same time, economic research has failed to find that remittances make a significant contribution to a country's economic growth. Uh, and, and you, you know, you look at Lebanon as a as a good example of that. You want to talk a bit about that? Yes. In in fact, I, you know, this has been the puzzle throughout my work. I originally was I didn't didn't start out looking for this result, and and when it when we got this result, I went back to basics, and then I understood. I spent about fifteen articles, fifteen years of my life trying to understand what's really going on. See, remittances are very good on the person to person level. So I send money home to my family. They have their income goes up, so they're better off. So if they're poor, they're less poor. They could couldn't buy, you know, what they want. Now they can buy more likely to buy consumption goods, luxury goods, import Sony's TVs. <laughs> they can have, you know, have lunch. Yeah. It, so it's all good. They can send kids to school. Mm -hmm. They can go to a private hospital rather than go to the public hospital. That's all good on the micro level. The problem for when I was talking about the, the remittance trap is that when you look at the macro impact of it, right. there, are, there are nuances to this story. For example, when you, I tell you people get educated, Lebanon, people get educated in order to leave. Yeah. Your ticket out of Le Lebanon exports only one thing, white collar workers. <laughs> right. What we have, okay? And and so so you get educated because you know your cousin is outside and they that's the way they they went to the Jesuit University or the Lebanese University or the American University of Beirut and they got out, you see. Right. You 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 go and get the same thing. You want to be healthy because it's the healthiest that usually leaves. So when you get this, you know you you get access to private medication or med, med, private medicine, right? And and better education because you are. The, the person that's going to leave and, and, and you are the best investment of your family back home. Right. So when I was looking at that, the worst yet is what I discovered is that remittances provide what we call in economics cause a moral hazard problem. Yeah. And if I have a, just a minute to, to elaborate on this, because it's important and sure. we found evidence of it in yeah. a number of studies we did. See, what happens is, what, when remittances come in, the, the people that get the remittances are, in a sense, insured, insured against shocks. Right. And with every insurance, there's the, there's, the, there's the problem of moral hazard. It's not 
for those that are not familiar with this term, that has nothing to do with morality. <laughs> this is a term that comes out of insurance, yeah. meaning they are less likely to care what the government is doing. Why? Because if all my money is coming from abroad, what do I care what my government is or is not doing? Right. Okay, because it doesn't affect me. As long as they don't tax remittances, what do I care? So that's the first line of the moral hazard. It actually gets worse. In countries that receive remittances, the government knows that people are receiving remittances. So what's their incentive to provide good health and good insurance? They say, well, you know what? Ralph sends money home. His family is buying private insurance and buying, you know, private education. Why should I provide better public education? Mm. What's the incentive? So what we found that in many of those countries, governance suffers. Yes. Because people don't ask and the government is not forced to tell. It's not held accountable. So that's one aspect. There's the other aspect, which is called the, the uh, Dutch disease, which right. is, you know, when remittances come in, they cause the exchanger to be overvalued. As a result, the export sector suffers and the non-traded sector, such as like, you know, hotel, uh, such as uh, restaurants and services, they thrive. Yeah. But those, that sector is not responsible for growth. It's the open sector that usually pulls countries forward. Right. Look at India, when it was inward oriented, where it was growing, and when it opened up, how it just like, you know, sped at light speed. Same thing with China. See, so it's, the, it's, the, it's that uh, sector that is traded, we call it, or open to the world, that is responsible for growth. What remittances do, they kill off that sector. Right, yeah. I can, I can relate to this, uh, Ralph. So, you know, Lebanon, you say, you know, some of the best universities in the area, a lot of research, a lot of well-educated citizens. Uh, but the statistics is that up to two-thirds of the male and nearly half of female university graduates leave the country. And again, you know, going back to where I grew up in India, it's sort of a similar situation. You know, it's very much a consumption-driven uh, area. It has excellent health care. It has excellent education, 100% literacy. Uh, but it's all sort of fueled by <laughs> the money coming in. And just as you observe in Lebanon in terms of entrepreneurship and industry, uh, we see the same issue in, in that context as well. Indeed. And so because people were always asking me, Ralph, what is the impact on growth? And I said, listen, remittances alleviate poverty, but they're not the manna from heaven. They're not the answer to everything because people wanted to say it's all about remittances, you see. And I said, no, you still have to do your job. You still have to provide infrastructure. You still have the government still has a role to play. You can't just say the diaspora is going to take care of everybody and therefore we don't do anything. You see? Yeah. And, and the, the, in some countries, by the way, like in the Philippines, people are trained in order to leave. I mean, they have, they have hotel management, uh, you know, uh, uh, training of nurses and this because that's an export. That's, they, they have the, some of the best white collar workers out in, in, in many from the Philippines are in the hotel management industry, or they are in the, in the medical profession. It, it has become an export oriented that people are exported. Right. And that does not lead to growth in the country. All it does is you're leaving either people that can't leave or the elderly. And all they do is consume. So now there is no growth. You see? Right. And although countries would like to say, oh, no, no, it is. And we have no one has been convincing, been able to. Con of course, there are cases here and there. But on average, when you do this panel work, 
regression work, you do not find it. And I always say it alleviates poverty. It does a lot of good things person to person. But we are macroeconomists. We're looking at government policy, what ought to be the policy. And I always say caution that remittances have a tendency to stifle the productive sector, allowing the less productive sector to thrive. And as a result, it creates this dependency and you get into this trap. You need more remittances only because to end up needing more because the economy is never really growing out of its out of that trap. Yeah, so so the, the two symptoms, as you say, one is weaker governance, and that's because the government is sitting back and saying, you know, let me just tax it, let me just do whatever I need to do, uh, but I don't really have a, I don't really need a strategy from a growth perspective because everything is really driven by consumption and money coming in. Uh, and the other aspect is what you call the Dutch disease, which is essentially money coming in, driven into consumption, increases prices, uh, makes exports less competitive, uh, and generally uh, dampen any type of industry uh, inside the inside the country, right? Exactly. And and what you end up finding, like when I used to go to Lebanon, you'd see, you know, you go to a building and, and there's all these... <laughs> You know, doctors, so and so, doctor, doctor, they're all medical doctors. None of none of them are practicing. They've all opened restaurants yeah. and stations because they figure that that's the service sector. You see, that's the one that thrives. So, in fact, we have a we have a paper where we technically, econometrically show this that the the sectors that thrive when remittances come in are the non-traded sector. Mm-hmm. Now, people will tell, oh, but you see, it's it's real estate is thriving. I said, real estate. What you typically see is a villa in the middle of a village that doesn't have running water. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it's not growth. <laughs> right. It's not growth. It's inflation. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly it fuels it fuels real estate booms and then busts. Right. I mean, think of Tajiks. Tajiks. A lot of them work in Russia. <laughs> if, if if the price of gas the gas in Russia goes up then remittances go up. And what happens in Tajikistan? People buy land and they, and they build on it. And then suddenly the price of oil goes down and suddenly what you see is the real estate price in the country tanks. And by the way, if I still have time to just to let you know that what it does, it divorces the real estate market in the country from the, from the domestic economy. Yeah. So, so when, you are, when you're trained in first world economics, you will miss it because in the U.S., for example, the real estate market is very much linked to what's happening to the domestic economy. Right. But not in remittance countries. Mm, mm, that's because, because it depends on the livelihood of the remitters sending money home. So what matters to the remitters in the other country is what, de- what affects the real estate market in the home country. Right. So, and so it, it, you know, it's very easy to form bubbles, I would imagine. Exactly. Right? So, you're right on. Yeah, it's so, exactly. so this shock then, would you, yeah. would you speculate, uh, Ralph, the shock, uh, a 20% loss of remittances, uh, if your hypothesis is right, we should see a fairly rapid decline in real estate prices, right? Indeed. In, in fact, that's what's going to happen in, in, the, in the countries that receive remittances because it's a double whammy. Yeah. One is the domestic economy itself is, is spiraling, okay? So anything linked to it is going to be affected. And then the livelihood of the remitters in the other, outside the country is being affected, which means now they, are, they need liquidity. 
And so they, what, what that means, it puts pressure on them to sell their, I mean, let's put it this way. Suppose, yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose I'm buying an apartment in Beirut. Mm. Although right now, I mean, look, look what happened in Beirut. Okay. <laughs> so if I had an apartment in Beirut right now and I lost my job in the U.S., what I'm mo most likely to do is try to sell the apartment in Beirut. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and this has nothing to do with whether Lebanon, you know, is in tailspin, not tailspin. I need money because I need to show myself here. Right. Let alone when the Lebanon itself is in is in bad bad uh, situation. So what it does, it it creates a multiplier effect, and what you're absolutely right, it creates a, a real estate bubble in, in a negative one in the sense it yeah. it drives the prices you know even further down than they ought to be if they were just linked to the domestic economy. That's yeah. why I call it a perfect storm. Right. And that's what. By the way, just to let you know, in the old days, we would say, well, the country gets a shock. Yeah, okay, fine, the exchange rate tanks, yes. Okay, consumption shrinks, yes. But because exchange rate, you know, depreciates, its exports become cheaper and eventually gets itself out of the problem. Okay, that's a typical uh, remedy. In this case, it doesn't work at all. You cannot export yourself out of this crisis because even if you lowered your prices, who's buying? Right. Even if your exchange rate is cheap, who's visiting you? Suppose you're a tourist country, mm. okay? And, and because of this crisis, your exchange rate depreciates. One, typically we would say, if this were an idiosyncratic shock, only a shock to your country, people from, for, uh, tourists would find it cheap and they would come in. Yeah. But right now, your exchange rate tanks and the tourists themselves are suffering. They, they ain't coming, first of all, because of COVID. Yeah. Second of all, because of their own incomes have, have uh, diminished, right? So, and, and, and in your, so as a result, the, the country that's being hit cannot get itself out of this, even if it does everything right. Suppose right. you control COVID in country X mm. and, the, and the incidence is zero, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's say to the world, come here, but who's going to come? The, in, the individual in Europe and in the U.S. is already suffering. They're losing their jobs. Right. So, right. And they're scared. So why should they come? So it's not an idiosyncratic shock. As I said, we are all tied together. We need a collective action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what, yeah. said, what the first world do. I mean, the, the rich countries and, and the uh, developed countries do. What should IFI such you know, do in order to shore up the finances of the countries and what should the countries that are affected, remittance countries, do to help themselves? Yeah, yeah. You know, like you say, it's a, it's a systematic uh, worldwide shock. So it'll yes. be interesting to see how, um, how we can tackle this. I want to shift gears, uh, Ralph, and go into something completely different. Yep. And that is another area that you've been uh, very passionately working in. And that is and I had no clue about this before I read it, <laughs> Ralph. So, uh, you, you know, how much is the whale worth and the benefits provided by the great whales, including capturing carbon, make a powerful case for protecting them, according to economists. And you have gone through a calculation to ask, what is the economic value of a great whale, right? Yes. In terms of the services, in, uh, so I was not looking at the intrinsic value of life. Yeah. The intrinsic value of life is unlimited. Mm -hmm. I was just saying, here is here's a creature 
By the way, I discovered it because I myself went to study the blue whale as a hobby. And it fell on this discovery. Uh, and my first degree is in sciences. So I was with a bunch of uh, whale experts where I discovered that the science was already there, but the science was, all this knowledge about the whale was living within the scientists and they had no way of translating it to, to the people with the money. Yeah, you see? <laughs> right. So, so I ended up being the translator, if you like. I see myself as two groups because the, the scientists were complaining to me like, look, the whales are dying. Yeah. Um, they do this wonderful thing where the whales are dying and we keep saying, help us, and no one is coming. I said, because you're not speaking the language of the people that I live with. I was a mission chief for many countries. I was, a, you know, I work in the field. I work with prime ministers, with heads of budget, ministers of finance, and people with the money, private sector. Mm-hmm. And they speak a different language. If you want to get their money, you have to speak their language. So they asked me, how would you do it? I said, well, let's look at how, what the way it does for us. Yeah. Okay. And I only focused on three things for which markets exist. Jill, that's very important. I could have focused on other things because the whales do many other things. Yeah. But I only focused on activities for which prices already exist. Mm-hmm. The biggest one was, well, the whales capture carbon. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first night I read this. I read, the, by the way, I read about 37 articles, everything that was out there. Yeah, just describe that, that carbon cycle a bit. Um, okay. Yeah. So what happens is the whale, these are the great whales. Okay. Yeah. But to understand what is a blue whale, a blue whale, you can fit the largest elephant you've ever came across or read about. You can fit it into the mouth of a blue whale. <laughs> right. To give you an idea, because I've been I've been in their presence many a time yeah. over three four years. So so just to give you an idea, so they we all have carbon in our in our in our bodies, as you know, mm-hmm. but the whales have them in spades. So when you look at the amount of carbon that they capture. They, on average, I calculated on average about nine tons of carbon. Mm -hmm. That's carbon. But when you want to convert it to carbon dioxide, each each unit of carbon matches, you know, with with two units of oxygen. So you multiply by 11 over three and you end up with 33 tons of carbon dioxide are being kept out of the atmosphere. Because what happens is this whale at some point dies Mm -hmm. and they, negative buoyancy they're so heavy they sink to the bottom of the ocean yeah and they stay there for a very 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 long time right so that was the first piece of the puzzle and of course i'm a financial economist and i said but i know i know there are prices for carbon out there per ton of carbon we know what the price is there's a whole market for it exchange market mm-hmm. carbon exchange market so I said, next I asked the scientists, uh, well, how long does a whale live? And they said, well, some of them live 150 years, some of them 90 years, 75 years. So I took a minimum of 60. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, as, as a mathematician, you always make the case with a with the minimum of, right? Not the math. Mm-hmm. All I do is just to show something. So then I thought, okay, suppose it lives 60 years and it's capturing this, you know, this, this amount of carbon. Yeah. And at of 60 years, it dies and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. So I, since I used to teach finance, uh, it looks like a bond with a balloon payment at the end. <laughs> okay. take, take the price, multiply it by the quantity, and discount it properly to the present, and I get the price. Now, the second part is even more, I mean, it blows your mind. 
you know. Yeah. In this whale, the, this largest creature on ever lived, eats the smallest creature you've ever seen, which is the krill. Krill yeah. is, okay. So the whale, imagine a triangle in your head. The whale eats a krill. Mm-hmm. What does the krill eat? The krill eats phytoplankton. Right. What is phytoplankton? It's a microscopic organism that does one thing where it, it captures oxygen and releases, uh, sorry, it captures carbon dioxide and releases oxygen. Mm-hmm. So how much about the estimate was 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. Mm-hmm. 37 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year are captured by phytoplankton. Right. Just to give you an idea for the listeners, that's equivalent to four Amazon forests in terms of carbon dioxide per year. So they're capturing enough carbon dioxide equivalent to four Amazon forests per year. Yeah. So it's low. So the whale eats the krill. The krill feeds on phytoplankton, okay, and so what. But for phytoplankton to multiply, it needs phosphorus, nitrogen, and iron. Yeah. And that's where they find all three. In the poop of the whale. Excuse my... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> incredible. When I discovered this, I, I thought they were joking with me. I said, are there papers published? They said, of course, there are papers published. It's well known. Mm-hmm. So I went to scientific papers, downloaded them, and started reading them. I'm like, oh, my goodness. So this is this is the what's called the whale pump. Yeah. So the whale eats the krill. The krill eats the phyto, the phyto. Now, so what means to me, I looked at it as, so the whales are contributing to the productivity of phytoplankton. Yeah, it's sort of a, the way that I understood it, uh, Ralph, that it's sort of a stirring action, right, in the sense that the whale is bringing the nutrients needed for the phytoplankton toward the surface. It both. It's bringing the nutrients. Yeah. It moves up and down, and its own poop, it poops at the surface. Yeah. And that poop has tremendous amount of, of the limiting factor in the Antarctica, which is iron, and in the Atlantic, it's phosphorus uh, okay, and nitrogen. So there's a, there's another, it's called the, the um, uh, oh my goodness, I forgot the name. It's, the, it's when it moves laterally. Uh-huh. There's another, okay, there's a lateral, when it moves from one body to the other. Yeah. It's called the conveyor belt, okay? Okay, it's so, the, the, so it's, it's mixing, mixing sort of horizontally as well, as well as exactly, yeah. Exactly, and, and you see it because people have taken satellite images where phyto is very active, yeah. and they've mapped it with the activity by the whales, and they see the, the correlation between the two. So the whales are very smart. They're so smart, that they fertilize their own food. They know that if they poop more, you get more phyto, more phyto, more krill, more krill, more food. <laughs> They're very smart. They're very they're intelligent beings. So what I did with my colleagues, we, 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 we said, okay, so how much is the increase in the productivity, primary production? Yeah. That's adding that to the carbon sequestration and, and capture. So when you put it all together, you have what's on the body of the whale and what is being captured indirectly through the fertilization of the phyto. That's one. Mm. Then we looked at what other services do whales do? Well, you have more whales, you have more fish. There have been studies that shown that because you have more whale, by, by the way, when, whale, when whales are vibrant and, 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 and healthy, there's a whole ecosystem around them because there's more krill, there's more, they're not the only ones that eat krill. Yeah. Eat krill. 
every you know uh, uh, otters, uh, sea otters eat krill, and so forth. Another, so there's a whole ecosystem that's benefiting from it. And some people have done studies on the impact of of whales on fisheries, and there's a positive relationship. So we estimated the impact on fisheries and fisheries, and I'm only talking about wild fisheries here. That's a hundred fifty billion dollar per year industry. Yeah. Next is tourism. You know, like I was, I was on a you know looking at, at, on my first study was a, as a as a as a tourist looking at whales. That's that's another you know a billion a, a couple of billion dollars in terms of uh, annual uh, ticket sales. Yeah. So I only looked at those. I didn't look. For example, people have faulted me and said, why didn't you look at impact on biodiversity? And I said, because there is no market mm-hmm. for biodiversity. Yeah. So I wanted to make the case with the minimum. So when you do the present value, remember this is now, when, when you're doing this analysis, this is over the lifetime of the whale. So the whale is every year generating revenue. And, and I used to teach fixed income mathematics, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a bond that gives you a certain payment every year for the, for the lifetime of the bond. So what you do is you discount it to the present. When you put it all together, the minimum amount is two million. Mm-hmm. Two, two million per whale. And, per whale. and but it how many how many whales do we have? About a million and a quarter left out of five million. A million and a quarter. So it used to be five million. It's it's down to a million, million and a quarter. So even at a million whales. Uh, each uh, each two million dollars worth. Two trillion. It's uh, two trillion dollars in, in uh, net economic exactly. value in those. And the beauty yeah. of this, it's it's because it's one thing to say it, but if I if I still have time, it's is a very important point. I was using the whale to illustrate, um, as because I wanted to capture people's imagination to say, look, when we talk about conservation. Mm-hmm. Usually, the, the conversation goes like this. You, you appeal to, you know, to the bleeding hearts, right? Help nature. And so the people with the money that I call it what's in it for me crowd, don't subscribe to that. They say, well, you know what? You want me to give you money to help the whales? Okay. But, you know, I'm helping the cheetahs and the bonobos and the orangutans and the elephants. Oh, my goodness. Now I have to give you money for this. So I wanted to write it in a way to say, no, saving the whale is saving yourself. Yeah, yeah. The whale is part of the oxygen, carbon, uh, you know, link. So every breath that you, every other breath that you take, by the way, is due to the phytoplankton because phytoplankton produce 50%, over 50% of all oxygen in the world, by the way. If you look at Woods Hall website, it's almost 80%. Hmm. So almost like every other breath on flow basis is due to the oceans. And what I've discovered as I was working on this is that people know very little about the ocean. The way we understand the oceans are introduced to us, although they're four-fifths of the planet, is as a depletable resource. Yeah. Meaning you and I only know the ocean when there's a fish on your plate in a restaurant and you're being charged 40 bucks for it. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is, and it's a dead fish, what I'm trying to tell you is a living fish, a living whale is far more valuable to us. Then a dead whale, because a dead whale fetches in countries that eat whales, still eat you know, whale meat, 40,000. If it's a fin whale, maximum 80,000. A living whale 
can generate a minimum of $2 million. So, so um, in conclusion, uh, Ralph, you know, when you look forward, um, what are the policy options you would suggest from an international perspective here? Uh, uh, not just policy, but from, from an implementation perspective, what, what would you suggest? Well, in, in, if we're talking only about the whales, I say let them live. <laughs> let them live because they have look, been looking after us yeah. for so many years. And, and by allowing them to live and thrive, then we thrive ourselves. That's in terms of the whales. And I could be more, if you like, you know, uh, more, more specific, but because the time is of, of the essence here. Yeah, but from, so, a, from a, the, the whales are lost not because of uh, just hunting, uh, which no, still exists, but because of other issues like boats and and you know they're getting entangled in exactly. things like that, right? So, exactly. would you suggest some sort of a tax, or, or what? What would be sort of the implementable policy choice here? Okay. So, there's a very nice uh, initiative, national initiative that just got underway in Chile. Yeah, called the Blue Boat Initiative. It involves foundations, scientists, and the government itself. And the idea is to protect the ocean and in, 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 in living things in it because they've realized that the economy, the, the ocean economy, is almost like finding you know, uh, uh, oil in the desert. It's just that it's a renewable resource. Mm-hmm. So, you, so by allowing the ocean to thrive, you can, you can not only sequester more carbon on behalf of Chile itself, but also on behalf of the planet because it's an externality. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a good. Two, you can generate employment because when you have more whales in the water, you have more fish, you have more fisheries, you have more fishermen, you have a whole industry that is built around it. The question is, where do you start? You know? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You start by first declaring, declaring that this whale is, is a national asset. And that has already happened, not in the case of a whale. If you look what is going on in New Zealand, for example, New Zealand is way ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. For example, they've declared all animals to be sentient beings. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know that, no. About a month or so ago, they declared all animals as sentient beings, meaning they, are, they, are, they, have a, they have feelings, they have just like, and they declared all rivers of New Zealand, they, they endowed them with personhood. So now a, a river in New Zealand has the same rights of an, as an individual. <laughs> so if you harm to it, there's a penalty. Yeah. It has rights as, and it has obligation towards it. So you start with that. You start with the legal framework around this. For example, people say, well, we have marine protected areas. I said, yes, but marine protected, declaring marine protected areas without penalties is, is not really saying anything. Mm-hmm. This makes you feel good <laughs> because if I'm a fisherman and I'm looking for tuna and I can capture sharks and, and whales by mistake and nobody penalizes me, okay, fine. I see one tuna and 100 sharks. I throw my net. I kill, all, kill off all the sharks to grab the tuna. But suppose you impose on me penalty for capturing sharks or whales. Yeah. Then I start to think twice about my behavior, you see? So you start with the legal framework. You still with the penalties, but that's not enough, Jill. Yeah. We don't want to build an economy based on penalties. We want to build an economy based on incentives. Mm-hmm. And the incentives come from creating markets. There are a lot of money out there 
trillions of dollars waiting to get into the the environment sphere, if you like. But people don't know what should they be investing in. And what I say is there is a way to, because I'm a financial economist, you can financialize this, which will bring benefits to the governments, to the local communities, to the businesses. Right. And so it's a win-win. Yeah. And you start by saying, look, whales have value. They are protected under the law. If you were to hit a whale, by mistake, no mistake, you pay $2 million. Guess what happens next, Jill? <laughs> An insurance company comes around and tells the tanker, hey, by the way, I have this acoustic system, which, by the way, is being now implemented in, in Chile. Uh, I have this acoustic system. If you were to put it on your ship, I would insure you. Suddenly what you've done, you've brought in the private sector, you see, that works with the government, PPP, right. to protect Wales, you start to create markets around a living ocean, a regenerative nature, which has not been the paradigm. Unfortunately, I was trained in neoclassical economics, and I'm guilty, like my all my colleagues, mm-hmm. in, in believing that nature is infinite and in, in, with infinite supply, and we are just to do things with abandon. Yeah, yeah, that is... is that is that is the key problem, and that's what I'm working on right now. Right before you called me, I'm I'm writing on this issue. That's that's a great place to stop, Ralph. Uh, this yeah. this has been great. Um, you know, thanks so much for spending time with me, and uh, good luck with uh, everything that you do in this area. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.